1978, Spider-Man was already a pop culture phenomenon. Marvel was producing toys, records, live-action television shows, cartoons, and a number one selling comic book series in The Amazing Spider-Man. But when the longtime previous writers left the book, Marvel suddenly found itself in need of a new writer to helm its flagship comic book series. So Marvel turned to their superstar former editor-in-chief to take over for their superheroic mascot, and that man was Marv Wolfman. The choice seemed like a surefire hit, and in many ways, the stories produced were exactly what you'd expect from top talent. And yet, when fans bring up the best Spider-Man creators of all time, you'd be hard-pressed to see someone mention Marv Wolfman. Why is that? Why is it that one of the comic's greatest creators who penned a great run of Spider-Man comics has gone forgotten? On this week's Amazing Spider Talk, we hope to discover just why Marv Wolfman is both one of the greatest yet forgotten Spider-Man creators. Too many who know the angles, uncover and untangle All the questions and the webs left out to tangle I'll be in 1962, last Wednesday's afternoon They'll bend your ears with reckless self-abandoned The Amazing Spider-Talk The Amazing Spider-Talk Come swing the air, sit back and prepare For the Amazing Spider-Talk Hello, I'm Dapper Dan Gavostin, and I own every issue of Amazing Spider-Man, including the annuals, which, Mark, they definitely count. This time, they really count. But I am the mischievous Mark Chinacchio, and I own every issue of Amazing Spider-Man, including the annuals. And Dan, I will say this live for everyone to hear, the annuals don't count. Welcome to the new season of Amazing Spider-Talk, the show where two fans and collectors uncover the strange, fun, and fascinating history of the Spider-Man comic universe. If you want to swing along with us on our journey through Spidey's past, present, and future, subscribe to Amazing Spider-Talk on your favorite podcast app. Every other week, we put a mainline episode of our flagship show, and sprinkled in between, we review new comics as well as interview some of the greatest Spider-Man creators of yesterday and today. This is the perfect time to start listening. In this season of the all-new Amazing Spider-Talk, we'll be revisiting Spider-Man adventures in the early 80s, where denim jackets were hip, Spider-Man got several new TV shows, and the creative voices at Marvel were constantly changing. Today, Mark and I will be taking a look at the run of one of the greatest and most forgotten Spider-Man creators to ever work on Amazing Spider-Man, none other than the man who started a crisis on infinite Earths, Marv Wolfman. Marv Wolfman. Man, he, he is a good-looking fella, don't you say, Dan? I would say he is dapper. Yep, that's right, Mark. And if you're watching live, you know what Mark's talking about. Marv is just the classiest of class acts and hardly a wolfman. Because brand new this season, starting literally right now, we're also video streaming our show live. We've done a ton of work to transform a podcast for your ear holes into an even better show for your eyeballs. So every Sunday or so every other Sunday at 8.30 p.m. Eastern Time, tune in on YouTube as we record Amazing Spider Talk Live. Plus, Mark and I will stick around after the show ends to interact with the audience and answer questions live. Just go to Amazing Spider Talk on YouTube, hit subscribe, and be sure to turn on notifications to be reminded when we go live. 
what do you think? Should we should we actually just do a show now instead of doing some some canned stuff and talk about Marv Wolfman and his work on Amazing Spider-Man? I would love to. So let's let's talk about it. Mark, you're our historian here on the show. So why don't you tell us a little bit about this Marv Wolfman guy? Yeah, you know, so he's a guy. His last name's Wolfman. He wrote some comics. No, no. So, okay. here's the thing with Marv Wolfman. I mean, he he was an editor in chief of Marvel. But like, I think, you know, we talk a lot about like why he's why this run might be forgotten in the context of other creators who worked on Spider-Man. And I think when it comes to Marv Wolfman, I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that so much of what Marv Wolfman is remembered for in this industry was associated with the work he did for DC, a.k.a. the Distinguished Competition for you guys playing the home game. That's where he basically got his big break into mainstream comics. And after he left Marvel, which was soon after this run, in fact, in the early 80s, where he did basically like his most groundbreaking work was with DC. But Marv's first comic book work was actually in the mid 60s and fun story i i did not know this until i was like looking some stuff up in preparation for the show dan his one of his earliest works was an adaptation of a stephen king short story which the name of the king story was called i was a teenage grave robber it was uh in a black and white fanzine that wolfman published and the name of the story there was in a half world of terror and i think this is like one of the first stephen king stories to kind of see the light of day so that's pretty cool you know stephen king Probably one of the biggest and best when it comes to horror. So there you go. Wolfman. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Wolfman adapted that for an indie zine that he was a part of. So his first published credit for DC was in 1968 with the the series Blackhawk. He did some, a lot of horror stories mainly, which would kind of tie into why he was doing Stephen King back in the day. But he also did some work on the original Teen Titans series, which if you know Wolfman's credits later on, that would be obviously very significant uh, in terms of Teen Titans. He, While he was at DC, he met Len Wein, who, of course, would go on to be both an editor-in-chief of Marvel and was basically Wolfman's predecessor on Amazing Spider-Man as the main writer. So they kind of did the jump to Marvel together in the 70s. So, you know, like we were saying in our intro, a lot of jumping back and forth for a lot of the creators that we're going to be talking about during this, during this season in terms of DC, Marvel, etc., and there might even be an episode about all this back and forth and instability in terms of, uh, you know, spoiler alert. So a- including, you know, he, he kind of hooked up with one of our old guests on the show, Roy Thomas. Right. What tell me about this? Yeah. So he joined Marvel in 1972 and he was basically brought in to be like Roy Thomas's uh, protege. Now, Roy Thomas was the editor in chief at that time, taking over for Stan Lee, which is when when we was at the end of season two that we had Roy on. Or is that the beginning of season two or three? I, I don't even remember anymore, Dan, at all. Time is a flat circle. I believe it was the end of season two. Okay, so when when Roy took over for Stan Lee, of course, and wrote a couple of issues of Spider-Man while he was at it, Roy was basically grooming grooming Marv Wolfman to be the heir apparent, and Wolfman did actually take over for as editor-in-chief in the mid-70s, but it was not a long run. He kind of felt that he wasn't able to focus on the things he wanted to, so in 1976, he actually stepped back down as editor-in-chief to just being a scribe, I shouldn't say just being a scribe, but to to focus more on, on his writing. So again, Wolfman's uh, niche seemed to be kind of more in the horror realm, where which probably his most significant co-creation with Gene Colan was part of the Tomb of Dracula series, and that was the Vampire Hunter Blade, uh, star of what, three movies? 
So yeah, and up soon to be a new one. Other co-creations, though, prior to Wolfman jumping on Spider-Man, he actually co-created Bullseye, the the arch, well, one of the arch nemesis of Daredevil, and Nova with John Buscema. But Bullseye he did with the artist uh, Bob Brown. And of course, while he was working on Spider-Man, he co-created Spider-Woman slash Jessica Drew with uh, Carmine Infantino, another DC name that jumped over to Marvel in the 70s. And we're going to do a whole episode later this season on Spider-Woman. Yes. So again, we're, we're, we're teasing season four out, out the yin-yang right now. He ended up, Marv ends up leaving Marvel in 1980 uh, with George Perez. And it was a, actually a pretty hostile breakup by all, the, all things considering, which is, again, maybe another reason why this run doesn't get the attention it deserves because this this was not a, an amicable breakup in terms they were basically arguing over certain creations which would then kind of kind of come back uh, a little bit later especially when it came to blade uh, in terms of you know creators rights and things like that marv would go on with perez to work on a bunch of things most significantly was the new teen titans which I would basically say was if you're not kind of boned up on the new Teen Titans, that was basically DC's answer to the new X-Men of the same era. You know, the new X-Men being Wolverine, Colossus, Nightcrawler, etc. So Marv creates his own band of teenage uh, characters. Now, some of them were previous established characters like Robin, but he also ended up creating a bunch of characters for that, like uh, Starfire and Raven and Cyborg, who, of course, was in the New Justice League movie. So and and basically like New New Teen Titans was like the it title for DC in the early 80s. So like, I mean, you know, legacy made just in that alone. And then if that wasn't enough, him and Perez ended on ended up going on to do the miniseries Crisis of the Infinite Earths, which you uh, referenced earlier in this episode, Dan. And this series is like the, it's it's the quintessential mega event. I mean, you know, there are some people who kind of argue back and forth, which is considered the first really big crossover event in comic book history. Was it Secret Wars, which Marvel did, which was kind of around 84, 85? Or was it Crisis? Crisis is probably more significant, though, because it basically took 50 years of very convoluted continuity for DC, which, I mean, like they, they had characters in all these different multiverses and stuff, and it just streamlined everything into one general continuity or, or close enough. And this was basically kind of the, the, the gospel of DC until the new 52 relaunch, which was, what was that, 2012, Dan? I mean, so this guy basically, so in 80, from 85 to 2012, established the continuity for one of the big two. Sure. And, and that would that kind of model would go on to define DC over the past decade where they just keep doing this kind of thing over and over again to their fans dismay, I think. Yeah. So, you know, Wolfman would continue to write for comics, mainly DC throughout the 90s and the aughts. He actually lost a lawsuit to Marvel in 1999. It actually spilled over into the year 2000 over the claims of ownership of Blade. So, again, the, the bad blood kind of remained there with Wolfman. And that's kind of his his bio for the most part in terms of his significant contributions to comics. Do we want to talk a little bit more about Marv and Spider-Man here, though? Marv himself has said that he's not the biggest fan of Spider-Man. I found this great quote in Tom DeFalco's book, Comic Creators on Spider-Man, where he basically says that he was reading Amazing Fantasy and was actually really upset 
when Spider-Man took over the final issue and the book was canceled. He was he was the guy that was reading it for everything but Spider-Man, which which is funny now because you can get those comics for fairly cheap. But some reason, the 15th issue is the million dollar one. So Marv was kind of the lone holdout, but he ultimately kind of was won over through a couple of issues of Amazing Spider-Man. He kind of saw what Stan Lee and Steve Dicko were going for and and ultimately found something valuable in that. I did appreciate Marv what he when he was talking about what he found to be unique about Spider-Man, though, once he did start working on it. In Tom DeFalco's kind of interview compendium, Comic Creators on Spider-Man, which if you don't haven't picked it up, I mean, friend of the show, the legendary Tom DeFalco, excuse me. It's a great resource with interviews upon, you know, with all of the well, not all of them, but many of the writers and artists who've kind of worked on Spider-Man over the years. But anyway, Wolfman said to to Tom, I've taught writing courses at various points in my career. I use Fantastic Four and Spider-Man as examples of what I call external and internal writing. He considers Fantastic Four to be external writing because those are stories that focus on uh, plot. Characters are important, but the best Fantastic Four stories are about huge concepts like Galactus, the Galactus trilogy, which was kind of this you know, basically one of the first big super cosmic events in the Marvel uh, universe or when uh, the Fantastic Four met the Inhumans for the for the first time or when they went to Wakanda for the first time and met Black Panther. However, Spider-Man is more internal. And I think we can all agree with this, Dan. I mean, these stories at the end of the day, what are what makes Spider-Man important? It's it's Spider-Man himself and, and his alter ego, Peter Parker. Uh, the villains are less important. It's very hard to it's very hard to remember a lot of specific Spider-Man stories. Instead, we remember individual moments for the character and and. I mean, I got to say, as someone who we talk about this all the time on this show, Dan, whether we like a series or maybe have uh, mixed feelings about it, it usually comes down to are we serving story or are we serving character? And for me, I'm always about, well, if it serves character, then it's Spider-Man done right. And yeah, we'll definitely circle back to this. I think this quote from this book is actually really important to knowing why Marv Wolfman's run isn't really remembered uh, amongst the greatest runs in Spider-Man, despite, I think, it being really strong on character. I think this quote really kind of defines his way of writing the character and kind of his legacy on the book. So, you know, Marv got to write Spider-Man from the editor-in-chief of Marvel at the time, Archie Goodwin, after Len Wein left to return to DC. And Marv wanted to take on the Fantastic Four series, but Archie told him he'd have to take Fantastic Four and Spider-Man or else he'd have to give Spider-Man to Jim Shooter. And Marv quickly you know, took both and realized that he had no talent for writing Fantastic Four, but that he actually loved writing Amazing Spider-Man. I think the reason he gave for that is that he felt intimidated by the legacy of Fantastic Four and that he couldn't you know, do what Stan and Jack had done, but the low stakes of Amazing Spider-Man allowed his voice to kind of come through. And I think anybody who's read these comics will find that Marv kind of very quickly took on the role of Peter and found a very natural voice in the character. Yeah, no doubt. I, I do find it funny that we we once lived in an era, Dan, where you know the 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 pressure was. Can you do Fantastic Four or Spider-Man? It was kind of like, you know, the the Ginger or Marianne question of, of comic book nerds, right? <laughs> now everybody would kill each other to even touch both books. Yeah. Right, right. And also that like that someone wasn't as intimidated by Spider-Man because ah, he's just, you know, he's kind of this loser character who, you know, you, you know, where now it's like, you know, 
I feel like not that the Spider-Man is the drummer from Spinal Tap per se, but it's a, it's a tough gig. I mean, it's it you, you it's very hard to make everybody happy writing Spider-Man, and I'm sure that's something that kind of not chases away, but w- would intimidate a lot of very good creators from from taking taking a, a stab at the character. So one of the biggest things from Mars Run is that he kind of straight away has Peter proposed to Mary Jane and you know to this day he can't recall whether that was his idea or not so that's kind of a big moment to not really have a a kind of licensed creator behind it's funny you know he he suggests that in Amazing Spider-Man number 186 which is a comic that stars the the chameleon as a villain which is also an interesting choice for kind of an early villain to use I think that kind of speaks a lot about kind of what what Wolfman valued. I mean, Chameleon is, I don't want to say a forgettable character because what is he's the first villain of in, you know, outside of the burglar in Amazing Spider-Man history, but you know, he's kind of not not one of the big guns per se, but he he tried to reinvent the Spider-Man character. He wanted him to get back to basics and take him in a new direction and Dan, how many times have we heard we're going to take Spider-Man back to basics, right? <laughs> <laughs> but this might be the original back to basics. <laughs> It's an interesting issue that he's highlighted. It's about four issues into his run. Yeah, I mean, it's against the chameleon, which, you know, one of Spider-Man's first foes. So that's kind of uh, appropriate. And it's curious because in the issue, Spider-Man is cleared of the murders of of Gwen Stacy and, and Captain Stacy and I guess Norman Osborn. And, you know, by the police, that's why he's jumping for joy on the cover. You know, he gets offered all these deals. And I, I thought one of the funniest parts of the issue is that he's offered a comic book deal by then DC's current editor-in-chief drawn into the, the comic. <laughs> so, you know, there's a what-if story there uh, that's just, like, dying to be told. Well, I have to imagine... Yeah, I mean, I think this comes... A little bit after we had the the Spider-Man Superman crossover from Jerry Conway. So I guess that was maybe maybe there was a little bit of a nudge about that, too, in there at this point. Yeah, I'm, I'm certain that that's totally possible. You know, another big thing from Marv's run. I mean, this is the second centennial issue that he got to do issue 200. And, you know, still these centennials hadn't really been figured out yet. So Marv actually had to fight to get Marvel to make the Fantastic Four issue 200 to be double sized because they didn't think it would sell. And he kind of put it all on the line. And when it did sell really well, then they kind of greenlit doing a double sized Amazing Spider-Man number 200. So like that, you know, we can probably thank Marv for these giant centennial issues existing. Now we get to spend ten dollars on them. I mean, back then it was what about forty cents or something. So <laughs> seven seventy-five cents. Oh my god! Yeah, I, I could be looking at the visuals in front of me, and instead I I'm, I'm looking at a script right now. But yeah, seventy <laughs> seventy-five cents. That's that's probably like ten dollars in nineteen eighty dollars. So so there you go. <laughs> Absolutely. So, you know, shortly thereafter, you know, this 200th issue, Marvel would leave the Spider-Man job both as writer and editor to return to DC. And he left the character in a bit of chaos, which we're going to talk about on the next episode. And, you know, that would bring in Denny O'Neill onto the book. It's also worth noting that that Wolfman's run concludes on a Black Cat story. Now, Black Cat was another one of his very significant creations, probably uh, one of his favorite creations. It's the very typical femme fatale character, although I think other creators would kind of take Black Cat to, to further heights after Wolfman left the story. But he never got to finish the story. And instead, soon to be, or I shouldn't say soon to be, but later, uh, full-time writer David Michelinie would actually finish the story for Wolfman on Amazing Spider-Man. So that's a fun little factoid there. 
like a decade early. I mean, look at that. Pretty cool. Pretty cool. Although it is strange after Marv left, and I don't know if these were inventory stories or what, he would hang around and script Spectacular Issue 44 and Spectacular Annual Number 3 after Amazing Spider-Man was over. So perhaps they had banked those already, but it's weird to see a creator go from Amazing to Spectacular. You know, it's this is before they had it all figured out, but, you know. What are you going to do? Yeah, but given given some of the editorial dysfunction of Marvel in the 70s and, and early 80s, I would probably wager that, yeah, those those stories were banked somewhere and they were probably like, oh, crap, we don't we don't have a, a story for Spectacular this month. Throw in this old Wolfman thing. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Well, very cool, Mark. Before we get to the rest of our conversation, I want to talk about our Slack. Hundreds of listeners like you hang out in our community of Spider-Man fans on the Slack. The amazing Spider-Slack community is absolutely free to join, and you can jump into active conversations with awesome people about collecting, conventions, movies, new comics, old comics, and more. Yeah, Mark, I'm there all the time. My wife even has to hide my phone sometimes. We're at dinner and she's like, can you get off that? I mean, that's probably the case for most of us. Just follow the link in the description and be sure to say hi and let us know what you think of this very episode in our amazing Spider Slack. So, Mark, I wanted to kind of run through some of the major beats of the Marv Wolfman run, right? He's done so many comics, you know, for, for this series, you know, starting off with this transition issue, Amazing Spider-Man number 181, where we kind of get the recap of the origin. He didn't actually write this, but this is kind of a, a kind of passing of the torch issue, you know, where Spider-Man goes to Ben's grave and, you know, confesses everything. It's actually a really beautiful issue. It's the comic book equivalent equivalent of a bottle episode, I feel. And then his run ends with issue 205 we were just talking about. Let's go through. What are some of the big things that like, are notable from Marv Wolfman's run? Because there actually are despite it being relatively overlooked, there are a lot of big things that happen here. You know, Peter, who had been living with Harry Osborn for a while, I mean, well, first he start, he was living with Aunt May, but then with Harry Osborn, well, in Wolfman, Wolfman puts him in his own apartment and with kind of this hard-nosed landlord, or I, I, would you call her a landlord, Dan? Is that what she's defined as or, or what? But... She, she mainly operates as the maid. She's always cleaning up after people who are, well, particularly Peter, who's destroying his apartment. I mean, the, mainly through the skylight, right? That's the real, like, uh, fixture of this apartment. He enters in and out of his skylight to kind of go off on these things. But, like, sometimes he forgets and leaves it open, and the skylight comes crumbling in. I would have kicked Peter out of the apartment if, if I were Miss Muggins. His apartment would be a fixture for the series for a long time, including a lot of weird features in it that were established before Marv was there. But, like, there's the giant teddy bear and the, like, cigar store Indian in the apartment, it's a very weird uh, group. Very, very Seinfeldian. Yeah. And, you know, I, I, I kind of laugh because, I mean, I think of like the stuff here and with Miss Muggins and stuff like it kind of reminds me from the Sam Raimi Spider-Man series with the, the I forget the name of the landlord in that. But, you know, the rent. Dickovich. Yeah. Rant. <laughs> I need rent. Uh, it's it's. But that's I mean, again, these are the kinds of of elements of Peter's life that. You know, I think others would draw on later on. I mean, kind of putting him on his own, not not with a roommate, not with Aunt May, but just kind of doing his thing. You know, this is where kind of the loser bachelor Peter meme 
was born for the most part. <laughs> it was detailed in an annual 15. They did this great spread of all of the like floor layout and all the images of Peter's apartment. It's really quite nice. So, yeah, I just thought it was worth mentioning his apartment. But the big one, you know, I'll let you take this one because you really wanted to jump on this topic, which is Peter's proposal to MJ. I always found this to probably be, I don't want to say the most significant thing that, that Wolfman did. But, I mean, it was it was very important to the fact that it's debatable. I know Wolfman's kind of denied exactly what his intent was with having Peter propose to Mary Jane. But... And meanwhile, he he does propose to her with a ring from a Cracker Jack box, which is just so Peter, even, you know, even then. But, you know, he's seeking stability. But with the, the woman that, you know, basically for the better part of the last few years in the comics seemed to have zero interest in in settling down with anybody. I don't know, Dan. I mean, we, we, we could talk about this later on, uh, either today or in another episode. But like it, it seems to me that the, the, the premise behind having Peter propose to MJ was mainly to to find a way to get MJ out of the book. Yeah, which is fascinating to me because she's such a great character and was really working at the time. And, you know, she leaves the book kind of. I mean, she turns him down, you know, in Amazing Spider-Man number 183 and suggests that she's like not the marrying type. But then she shows back up again, like just five issues later. And people who are fans from of the movie Far From Home will recognize in that issue, she's like Peter goes on a cruise and she just happens to be there dating this football player named Brad Davis, which is the character MJ in that movie is kind of seeing. And he's this big hunky guy, but we don't learn anything about him. He's there and for like a panel or two and then he's gone. And that would be kind of the role that MJ would play throughout you know, this run is like being on the fringe and running into Peter just to kind of like. I think get his like guilt or get his jealousness up. This kind of continues. This jealousy thing continues for a few issues. And then eventually in Amazing Spider-Man 192, Peter's supposed to go on a date with MJ to an Egyptian exhibit. He, of course, gets caught up with Spider-Man stuff. He's fighting Smythe and the Spider Slayers and J. Jonah Jameson. Misses the date like he does. And when he talks to MJ later, she's basically like, I will never see you again. And you know, true to form, we don't see MJ again in Amazing Spider-Man for quite a while, at least until Roger Stern came back on the book. Uh, not back on the book, until Roger Stern was on the book in the 80s. So, you know, pretty significant exit. And, you know, for those of you keeping score at home, you know, Gwen Stacy is dead and now MJ's out of the book. So both of Peter's two main love interests from the Ramita Stan Lee era are totally gone. Peter's main love interest, though, has to be Aunt May, and she has a a huge role to play in Marv Wolfman's run, mostly just being sick like she is. The the series starts with her kind of nearly being scared to death by, you know, Spider-Man and the rocket racer. And, you know, that causes the doctor to say, like, hey, maybe we should put like this woman in a nursing home. And for much of the, much of the run, that's really where she is for, for the time being. Aunt May's had a weird trajectory going from dying to nursing home to now being like maybe 60 something and like, you know, upwardly mobile, you know, but there's this other really big story involving Aunt May that kind of weaves its way in and out through the end of Marv Wolfman's run. And it's probably the, the, the story that he most banked his run on. Mark, you want to tell us about that? Well, 
So while Aunt May is in the nursing home, she is being cared for by a Dr. Ludwig Reinhardt, who, of course, turns out to be none other than the great Spider-Man villain Mysterio. At some point during this nursing home storyline, the burglar, the original burglar from Amazing Fantasy number 15, not not I mean, you know, last we saw him, he was tied up in webbing but the burglar shows back up and what why was the what what's the burglar doing back in the spider-man world dan what's going on here well he wants to get this gold that is in the basement of their forest hills home and basically i think marv saw an opportunity to say like hey why was the burglar going to kill uncle ben or why was he invading that home and we need a reason and yeah, and it's like pirate's gold, if I'm not mistaken. Well, because, I mean, this is this is kind of like, you know, what happens if you really fall down the rabbit hole of comics and you start posing questions? And I think, like, the question for this came from the fact that, you know, if you go back to Amazing Fantasy 15, you know, when, when Peter first encounters the burglar, it's after he shows up on TV, which is presumably in Manhattan, right? Is it even, is it considered Ed Sullivan or is it like an Ed Sullivan kind of show? Is that what we figure? Yeah. And, you know, the Parkers, of course, lived out in Forest Hill, Queens. So when, when the burglar kills Ben at their house, so it's like, how does, why is the burglar going from Midtown Manhattan into forest into the suburbs basically of the city and queens to kill and kills this old man so there that that wolfman posed a question and this was his answer (laughs) yeah and his scheme kind of like weaves pretty wildly i mean you've got like the burglar and mysterio kind of teaming up although they kind of turn on each other ultimately but like there's a point where they like try to convince peter that aunt may has died for a while there and you know you kind of half believe it because the audience knows that like she's not dead and that they're doing something there's this really great scene that kind of like comes out of that where like peter is in mourning and i i don't know how fondly you regard this scene but where uh peter is kind of on the foggy docks of of new york and robbie robertson comes up to him to console him and admits that he had a uh, he had lost a child in childbirth and he had like a, you know, like his son, Randy, had an older brother that never made it. And it's a really touching scene. And when I was rereading these comics, I was reminded, oh, yeah, Spider-Man comics used to do this kind of stuff, like really beautiful uh, character moments. But but anyway, Peter's in more mourning and things just get like increasingly worse. He comes back to like the Forest Hills house and he finds that it's been like torn to pieces. You know, of course, then it's ultimately revealed that like. Oh, yeah. You know, Reinhardt, that doctor who's taking care of Aunt May, I remember that name. He was my fake therapist that turned out to be Mysterio. So he eventually confronts him. And and the funny thing is, like, Marv doesn't tip a hat that it's Mysterio, that this Reinhardt character is Mysterio. So he's kind of relying on you remembering Amazing Spider-Man 24, which is... Like what? Like fifteen years prior? I mean, it's a phenomenal Dick O'Lee issue. So I mean, you should remember it, Dan. I mean, let's be honest here. That's kind of the big, like, culminating story is that eventually Spider-Man has to confront Mysterio and the Burglar in issue two hundred, and we're going to talk about that in a moment. Another big moment in the Wolfman run. I mean, we we talked about exit stage right for Mary Jane, but coming back into the picture long long gone from the book was Spider-Man's or I should say Peter Parker's first girlfriend Betty Brant. 
Yeah. And it's kind of funny because even though MJ leaves, you know, she gets this grand introduction that looks just like the MJ introduction, right? It's Peter opening a door and there is this kind of like model-esque picture of Betty Brant, which I don't think we ever thought about her that way. And maybe, maybe Peter did, but like, it's not the good reveal that the MJ reveal is. It's like, oh no, what are you doing in my apartment? And what is she doing in his apartment, Mark? She she is is back in town and she's basically saying, hey, I am not really with Ned Leeds anymore because he's on assignment and I was lonely and I'm tired of him always leaving me to go for his work. And despite still being married, she like basically falls into Peter's arms and it's like, hmm, this is this is this is a very awkward chapter for people who want to defend Peter Parker as a as a good person. Right, Dan? Yeah, because he kind of goes along with it. I mean, there's a lot of thought bubbles that suggest like, oh, I'm not really that into this. But for a guy who's really not that into it, he doesn't really put up much of a fight. I mean, she does kiss him at one point and, you know, he kind of rejects her later. But there is this kind of interesting debate online about whether or not Peter and Betty slept with each other at this time, which would really kind of solidify Peter as a scumbag. Because the, you know it pulls the Jerry Conway where like it cuts away the 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 dialogue box over the narration box says like some things are better left unsaid and discretion should be used and so there's kind of this question and you know somebody asked Tom Brevoort our our former guest about this and he suggests that no they didn't sleep together because Peter didn't seem very tortured about it whereas if he did sleep with her he would have been tortured about it but like when asked Marv Wolfman I read an interview where Marv Wolfman said he doesn't remember it's still up to the reader's interpretation which if I'm not correct is also what Jerry Conway says about his scene so you know whenever they don't want to confirm it usually means they did something (laughs) (laughs) at least that's how we're that's how we nerds are going to take it right now you know like I'm I'm literally podcasting in my basement, so I'm going to speculate about fictional characters sleeping together, Dan. If you're if you're not going to show it, you know what what do you what do you got to hide? I don't want to think this poorly of Peter because, like, I actually think like for a lot of this run, Peter is a real jerk. I mean, he can be throughout all the history of Spider-Man, but like cheating on like your I guess they they weren't really friends, but their colleagues like married wife is is. Kind of a, a low for Peter. Yeah, and and to that point, we do get the return of Ned Leeds in Amazing Spider-Man number one ninety-three, and Ned Ned does not take kindly to Peter's comforting of Betty during his absence. <laughs> yeah, he just straight up decks him, like walks in the door and just decks him. Hi, and, how you um, doing, Peter? Kapow! <laughs> <laughs> and it's like in front of everybody, and uh, it's actually kind of interesting because he confronts him again. And for, you know, score one in the jerk column for Peter is that when Ned confronts him again, Peter's like, I have to, like, get Betty to stop being in love with me and go back to Ned. So what am I going to do? I'm going to insult Betty in front of everybody. And he just, like, tears her a new one in front of everyone. And then it kind of feels bad about how much everybody overreacts to it. But it does have the attended result. Betty slaps him across the face. And that's the end of that relationship. 
That that was that was quite the roller coaster ride there, Dan. So speaking of of family turmoil, why don't we, why don't we talk about this next big story the, to come out of the Wolfman Run? This is an interesting one. This is this is involving the Jameson family and the Smythe family. Yeah. So in Amazing Spider-Man number one eighty four, Jameson discovers you know his his Wolfman son. I mean, I have to think that Marv liked this character for a reason, but he discovers that he's got to keep John frozen on ice forever, which I'm sure you can imagine how that goes for for Jameson. He does not love this. And it gets worse when John in cryostasis is eventually stolen by some mysterious menace that looks like master plannerish. They're these like henchmeny goons that are kind of like pulling off all these things. And and there's a string of villains that are kind of like wrapped into this, like uh, Spider-Man fights chameleon, like we talked about. And there's this great issue where he kind of like teams up with uh, captain America to fight electro. And they basically kill electro for the time being, which is how I treat electro. Now he's dead for the time being. And you find out that Elektra was paid 25 grand to humiliate Spider-Man. So there's like some grand schemer that's going on here behind all of this. Yeah, that's I mean, that was interesting story. Also, fun little note about that issue with Elektra and Captain America is I believe that is Jim Starlin's one and only credit on a Spider-Man on Amazing Spider-Man. He did the cover of that book. So just just thought I'd point that out to you, because if you look at the uh, that Amazing Spider-Man 700 variant cover skyline with all the creators on it, Starlin's name is on it. And I believe it's because of that issue. And it's a weird cover, too. Like every time I see that one in my collection, it's like this strange yellow cover that really stands out with like electro shadow. For some reason, that one really kind of stands out to me. And I believe that like uh, it was a John Byrne who did that issue. Maybe I'm that I'm definitely wrong about. Um, Yeah, I'm not sure who did the interiors, but I know, like I said, I know Starlin did the cover as part of this storyline with with Jonah his relationship starts to kind of, he, he develops a relationship. Why don't we talk a little bit about that, Dan? Sure. Yeah. I mean, like, I wouldn't say this is like the, like the first kind of full fledged, like meet cute of Jonah and Marla who would eventually become his wife and then die like they do. But you know, this is where kind of like uh, Jonah in his sadness, Marla confronts him. It's very similar to like the, the MJ confronting Peter after Gwen's death. And to me, this is kind of the first time we see Marla being a real sympathetic figure towards Jonah in in all of this. But, you know, Jonah is not really truly worthy of sympathy because it turns out that Spencer Smythe is behind all of this. And Jonah, of course, is the one that got Spencer Smythe active in, in the first place. So, you know, Jonah, like half of Jonah's stories are his own deeds coming back to bite him. Yep. It's always it's always what did Jonah do in his quest to to stop Spider-Man and how it bites him in the rear. So there you go. Now it's now it's now it's biting him and his son in the rear (laughs) or his son is trying to bite him because then, you know, Wolfman comes and attacks the office and Spidey has to stop uh, John from killing his father on the Brooklyn Bridge. Or was it the the Williamsburg Bridge or or the (laughs) GW? I mean, who, who knows? It's actually the Brooklyn Bridge this time. And like Smythe activates something that sends like John through a portal. And this is one of the many people falling off bridge deaths, non-deaths in the Wolfman run, which he would do. You know, so Smythe is dying of radiation poisoning from his robots. And this is his like final spider slayer that he's going to get to kill Spider-Man and Jonah. And eventually he like in a great issue, I think 
and I think maybe one of the best issues of the Wolfman run, he captures Spidey and Jonah and straps them together to a bomb. So they have this like handcuff with a bomb on it, which like is now kind of a trope for Spider-Man and Jonah that they're both kind of stuck in trouble together. I mean, this didn't start it because you can go back to the Green Goblin stuff where that was happening back in like the Ramita kind of like Ditko eras. But yeah, Smith dies before the bomb goes off and obviously Peter saves himself and Jonah and that's the end of the Smythes. We'll never see them again. Never again. No more Spider Slayers. Marv Wolfman, you you did it. No, we're, we're being sarcastic. Now, this next big storyline from the era, this this was actually causing quite a stir on Twitter recently, I think. Wasn't it, Dan? Or 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 no, that was more the high school graduation, right? We were talking. But anyway, Marv, one of the other big things that uh, came out of the Wolfman run was uh, Peter's graduation from Empire State University. Although... There's a caveat, right? <laughs> yeah. He uh, can't graduate because he's missing one gym credit. Which, so he's like stuck in summer school. Right. You know, I, I, I just see a Rodney Dangerfield movie coming out of this, right? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And so there's like a bunch of hijinks involving this. Like Jameson is doing the speech, of course. Peter just kind of gets like continuously bungles getting the gym credit. Like he gets interrupted by like the hypno hustler and you know, various other things. He's supposed to get his diploma when he and Jonah are strapped to the bomb together. So like, there's just a bunch of like hijinks that, you know, prolong this graduation, which is kind of interesting, you know, reaching out and we're not reaching out to Marv, but reading quotes from Marv. He says, when the decision was made to graduate Peter, I felt that we needed to forget how old he actually was. I planned to put him in graduate school and just leave him there. I didn't like the idea of letting him get married or have kids. If he's still fouling up as an adult, he just isn't a hero anymore. He's pathetic. An interesting quote from Marv about, you know, revisiting that topic of is youth important to Spider-Man as the kind of key theme. And for people, for so many people that argue that youth is the key theme of Spider-Man, it's funny how many of these creators do things in their stories to age him up. Like he didn't need to graduate. No one was counting his classes. No, although I do feel like a, a, a move like perpetual grad school kind of like just keeps Peter frozen in his early twenties for the rest of you know, eternity or depending on when the next creator decided to age him up. I mean, it's actually like, I don't know when I, when I think of Peter now, you know, ever since we're post Stan Lee, essentially, I just think of like early twenties and I know like what, what, what's, what is he supposed to actually be in comics now? Is he 30 yet or, or I think he's like 27 or 28, yes. depending on who you ask. So this kind of feels like really the point where the, the, the clock really starts getting stretched out more. For Peter when it comes to age. I don't know. I see it that way. Yeah, I, th I think that's right. And I think that's appropriate because some people truly are stuck in grad school forever. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, and now he's back in grad school now. So, you know, we're what, like 40 years later and he's still doing this. So I think you're right on the money there. So like like we said in Amazing Spider-Man number 186, he is ultimately cleared of the murders of Captain Stacy and Gwen Stacy. And you know, Spider-Man becomes a more beloved kind of character, you know, through much of the Marv Wolfman run until ultimately Jonah continues to kind of rag on him, you know, throughout the series and and try to get him back in the public's you know spotlight. Yeah, I mean, this this the district attorney, this tower, you know, like he does kind of seem to be like like he's going to be the white hat of this run for, for Spider-Man. But of course, like Spider-Man 
always finds a way to screw things up, including beating up on what appears to be an old lady, but it's actually the chameleon in this issue. So so kudos to that, Spidey. <laughs> Jonah seizes upon this to kind of like write an editorial about how you know, terrible Spider-Man is. You know, it ends up being false. So then like Robbie quits the bugle which is a kind of a really big, you know, moment where he says like, Jonah, you're no longer impartial and I'm, I'm leaving. It's really kind of the first time we would see a major shakeup at the Daily Bugle. And, and we would kind of have these, these come to Jesus moments between Robbie and Jonah thereafter. Although I kind of feel like it was usually more like Robbie kind of coming, you know, more in the position of power and Jonah kind of admitting that he's a bit of a, bit of a boob. So there you go talking about major character creations probably none is more significant beyond miss muggins than felicia hardy aka the black cat which you know would basically go on to i i, I mean i would say i guess some people could argue betty brant is but you know black cat is probably the third great love of spider-man's romance right yeah i think that's absolutely correct here she is. She's introduced in Marv Wolfman's run and, and immediately as like a love interest, I think, you know, I don't know if that was Marv's ultimate long-term plan, but like it makes itself very appear apparent straight away. So, you know, it's black cat herself was originally designed to be a villain in spider woman as advertised in amazing Spider-Man number one ninety four. They, they, they mentioned that in the book and she had a very different look. She originally looked more like uh, the Belladonna character from uh, spectacular Spider-Man. She had like a 1930s look, but it was Dave Cockrum, you know, the designer of the X-Men who kind of ultimately designed her. He was trying to get a black cat character into his X-Men run and it doesn't, wasn't really working out. And that character would ultimately end up becoming Storm. But then, you know, Dave Cockrum redesigned her for the pages of Amazing Spider-Man. We got, you know, uh, the kind of black cat costume that we still have today with, you know, variances here and there. Yeah, you know, depending on the level of cheesecake, I guess, from from yeah. the artist. But no, I mean, like, it's it's just so funny because, I mean, like, she's clearly introduced as a bit of an adversary for Spider-Man. I mean, she's a thief, but, like, right right from Jump Street, he's, he's clearly smitten with her, kind of is like, oh, you know, I know I shouldn't like her, but there's something about her. I mean, you know, and, and the thing is, like, really in all of these stories that Wolfman and then, you know, even into the early 80s with some other creators, they play with this idea of this romance, but they really don't, don't go into it. And, and, you know, we'll, in a future season talk all about the actual romance when it started to develop. Cause it was probably what about three, four years after she was introduced where they actually started to date in a way. Uh, if you call what they did dating, it was a little weird. <laughs> Spider-Man did meet her mother. So that, that did happen. So I, I would call that dating, but yeah, I mean, like I said, she immediately has this kind of preoccupation with Spider-Man and we see this kind of romance building and her whole thing is that she wants to, free her father who's in jail and taught, you know, was a big, you know, thief himself so that he can die at home. And Spider-Man ultimately confronts her. And this is the second one of these. She appears, appear, you know, appears to die while falling off of a bridge. And then her father dies anyway, but he's at home. And, and then later on, she would reappear to try to steal the golden lovers statue so she could present it to Spider-Man as this like grand gesture of love and that's kind of all we get from Black Cat here. It's kind of that, you know, time-tested Catwoman, Black Cat storyline that we've seen adapted across all the different variations of Spider-Man, but yet never in a movie. No, and, and I would also say that, like, 
you know, you mentioned the, the, the statue, of, you know, as kind of a gesture. I mean, like, there's definitely an element here where, like, especially early on, we're, 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 we're to be given the impression that she's a little, she's not quite all there, right? Like, there's something off with her. Like, I mean, like, yeah, Spidey is kind of smitten with her, but, like, I think he's also kind of frightened by, by her and her preoccupation with him because she, she seems a little too obsessed with him. He he suggests as much. He says that she should go to like a mental institution, which is actually where Roger Stern kind of picks her back up again is, you know, like in an actual mental institution. There's a level of obsession that is not normal coming from her. Yeah, I mean, I yeah. think it's just important to note because like later iterations of the character kind of present her as this very savvy, you know, kind of more street smart than Spider-Man. You know, Spider-Man is kind of the naive, sheltered one. And not that she's sheltered per se, but like like I said, the this, this preoccupation makes her, you know, it's kind of shown as a weakness, not not as a, as a strength or as being predatory. It's kind of like, whoa, what is this? You know, like, like what's wrong with her? So speaking of someone that should probably go see a therapist, you know, Marv Wolfman introduced none other than Deb Whitman in Amazing Spider-Man number 196. And it's not a big debut. She's basically a glorified secretary, which she would go on to be. But from what Marv wrote of her, like he's credited with creating her. But I, I, you know, I actually think Bill Mantlo is the guy that really set up the dynamic that we would come to know Deb for. She was kind of just part of like this grad school group of friends that, you know, Peter was working alongside like Dr. Sloan and Steve Hopkins, Chip Martin, Marcy Kane and Philip Chang, who would actually eventually come back in more modern Spider-Man comics. I promised that we wouldn't have guests tonight, Dan. And so we're going to have to save Deb's Deb's debut on uh, season four for a later episode. Right. (laughs) Absolutely. So. So, Mark, originally, when I was drawing up notes, you said, where is your reference to Kingpin's Midnight Massacre? Do you you know? And you were like, you were like, it's not that big of a deal. I'm like, what? Okay, so tell us about this. This is an issue you love from Mark Wolfman's run. I love this issue, and I also feel that this issue is historically significant in a number of ways. So this is issue uh, 192, and the the general plot, the story is, you know, Spidey is at Kingpin's compound. They're 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 fighting like they do, and Kingpin finally gains the upper hand over Spider-Man, and but he has been given an ultimatum from his wife Vanessa that. If uh, he does not give up a life of crime by midnight, she's going to leave him. And just as Kingpin is ready to crush Spider-Man's skull, for the most part, Vanessa comes in. It's like, you know, look at the clock. It's midnight. What are you going to do, Wilson? And he's like, fine. I'm over. So, like, he basically had Spider-Man beat and then gives up to to live with Vanessa. Uh, not to live with Vanessa, but to be with Vanessa and to be the the man she wants him to be, which is significant for that. Maybe maybe the reason why you didn't gravitate towards the story is because I think this is more significant for the Kingpin character than necessarily the Spider-Man character, because this this would be a defining moment for the character. And then in terms of like his relationship with Spider-Man, I also kind of view this story as like the last hurrah of the Kingpin as a major Spider-Man adversary, because obviously he continues to show up in Spider-Man comics to this day, including currently in the Nick Spencer run. But it was around this time that a a certain scribe artist named Frank Miller started picking up on Kingpin in Daredevil. And and let's be honest, I mean, you know, whether you watch the Netflix series or just read all the comics, 
Kingpin is the arch nemesis for Daredevil. And you can make the case early on that Kingpin was one one of the main nemeses for Spider-Man. And that kind of like got further removed. And and maybe Spider-Verse, Into the Spider-Verse brought that back, which, by the way, does visually quote this story, too. So, you know, again, another reason why it's historically significant. And I actually, when I was doing research for my my book, 100 Things Spider-Man Fans Should Know and Do Before They Die, I asked Marv Wolfman specifically about this book. And I was like, why, why did you do this story with Kim Ping? Did you want him to kind of be out of the Spider-Man picture? What was what was your thought process behind it? He basically said that he wanted to show that Kingpin was more than just a big guy with muscles. If he wanted to ever be with his wife again, she told him he had to wrap this whole Kingpin business up in 24 hours. So when he had Spider-Man down and was a second away from killing him and succeeding at last, he had to decide what he wanted more. And then he said, my view was he wanted Vanessa. I think by letting Spider-Man live, it made Kingpin something special and made him different from every other villain out there. So I, you know, again, I think this is a cool story. I, as a Kingpin Daredevil fan, I like where they took the character after that and kind of how this, this love for Vanessa being the driving factor behind everything that he did, kind of being an important part of the character's history. So there you go. There you go. Okay, so last and not least, or maybe least, <laughs> is uh, the final big thing to happen. We talked about it a little bit already, is the lead up to Amazing Spider-Man number 200. You know, we've talked to this, about this a little bit on our show before, but, you know, I got a chance to reread it again for this episode. I think it's an interesting issue, and I think it kind of falls a little flat for all the buildup, which certainly is a Spider-Man trope if you will. But one of the things I thought was notable about this issue is that it kind of set the standard for what a centennial issue would be. I mean, issue 100 is not really like most of the centennial issues. You know, it it just feels like a normal issue of Spider-Man that kind of recaps the origin. But here, like, like I said earlier, this one is double the size and length. It has like all of the things you expect from annual, like call outs to historical Spider-Man moments from the past, like, It's got Spider-Man and Peter throwing his costume against the wall. It rehashes his origin. It's got Peter stopping a thief at a library with the same police officer from Amazing Fantasy 15, you know, and, you know, the burglar who shows up in this ends up kidnapping Peter and taking him back to the same warehouse from Amazing Fantasy number 15. So, like, this is like something you'd see in every centennial of Spider-Man, which is like, it's got to feel like in some way, a reflection on the character. Yeah, and there's obviously big historic moments beyond uh, just the the pretend death of Aunt May. There's the actual death of the burglar, which is uh, obviously a significant moment. And when you talk about, you know, the Wolfman run being back to basics, I think it's significant that, you know, while this wasn't exactly the last issue, it's, you know, he's kind of wrapping his run by fleshing out the very first Spider-Man story ever told. And I think there's some significance to that and kind of putting like a capper on it for the most part. And they even brought back Stan Lee, which would be a trope. And he wrote one page of the book and they don't tell you what page, but it is actually the epilogue that he wrote. You know, if you want to get some more Stan Lee in, in issues with his name kind of not on it. So, you know, that's him. We get to see Uncle Ben confront his murderer for the first time, which has kind of become like now a kind of like recognized image from the Spider-Man mythos. Of course, Spider-Man loses his powers because it's a centennial issue. (laughs) And all of this over Dutch Malone's treasure. Do you want to tell us a little bit about Dutch Malone's treasure? 
Oh God! There's nothing to know. It's just a yeah, random it's, guy. It's, it's, it's a MacGuffin for the you know, or or a, a, a Malone guffin. I mean, what do you, what do you call it? I mean, it's 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 such a random thing. And and you know, I hate to. I think part of the reason why maybe this issue sometimes gets a bad rap is because it does kind of alter the origin a bit, and and in terms of like adding this element of tre- you know, like you know, it's kind of like. Joe Chill being the the gunman in in the alley for Bruce Wayne's parents in 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 Batman. It's like why why does the burglar need a reason to kill Ben? I mean the 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 reason the burglar kills Ben is because Peter had a chance to stop him and didn't. You know what I mean? Like it's like that's reason enough. That's what makes the Spider-Man origin so perfect. So like introducing this whole element of there's buried treasure in Forest Hills and, you know, Ben doesn't willingly let this guy into the house to look. It's it's just kind of really diminishes like what is arguably the greatest superhero origin of all time, wouldn't you say? Yeah, absolutely. And I think Marv himself even admits it was a mistake to, to do that. And he suggests that the Raimi films did it better, right? Where they have Ben and the burglar meet out by the car instead of in the house, which makes a lot more sense. But, you know, Marv doesn't have the ability to, like, retcon the whole murder just yet. Wait, you mean when Sandman killed Uncle Ben? <laughs> Don't get me started. <laughs> sorry, sorry, that. sorry. Yeah. <laughs> So, yeah, ultimately, you know, the burglar is scared to death by Spider-Man confronting him. And and Peter actually reveals his identity to the burglar. And that kind of freaks him out even more. And, you know, I would say this is not a murder by Spider-Man. This is like an accident. But Spider-Man does like like come at him and try to scare him really hard. So, you know, it's kind of an interesting moment where you could fight over whether or not Spider-Man actually murders a guy. It's not it's no gog. (laughs) <laughs> no, it is no, it is no God. It's, it's, it's um, no Charlemagne. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And, you know, by the end of the issue, Aunt May and Spider-Man make peace with each other, which is actually a kind of big moment for this series. And, and I think couldn't come sooner because that plot line was kind of old and tired, uh, just like Aunt May. Yes. The old, the old, the old battle axe was always just giving Spider-Man such a hard time until now. Everything and everything was so great with May until they tried to kill her off 200 issues later. <laughs> so, so Mark, we've talked through like in, in incredible detail here, probably more detail than we needed to, you know, all the details of the Marv Wolfman run and all these big moments that happen in it. But, like, why do you think it is that, like, ultimately Marv Wolfman is not listed amongst the greatest Spider-Man writers when people write those lists? I mean, I've never seen his name really pop up. What do you think it is? I I would say, you know, and it's funny, like, you know, one of the stories that we, you and I, not argued about, but kind of had a debate about, including, was the Kingpin story. And the reason why I found that to be significant because it's probably one of the few issues of this run where I felt like it was a big good versus evil battle. And I think that might have a lot to do with it. I felt that a lot, while the run is very tight in in terms of all of the subplots, and there are a ton of subplots throughout this run. Yeah. I mean, like, yes, you could say maybe we went into too granular detail here, but there's a lot to cover. Like a lot happens in terms of NJ and Aunt May and the burglar and, and Deb Whitman and Black Cat. But like, there's not a lot of big heroic Spider-Man stories to be found in this run, you know, like, like those traditional, you know, like 
you know, Spider-Man lifting the tons of steel or or defeating the juggernaut or or unmasking the goblin finally. We don't see any of that in this run. There's a lot of very small, intimate, quieter stories that kind of reflect on the past and the origins of the character. And I think that especially as time goes on, it's it just makes this run easier to forget because there's not there that's there's not that one story that makes you really go oh that's right because e- even the black cat's introduction it's not really the black cat character that we know today in terms of how she's characterized in these stories you know like it's we know that she was introduced but that's about it uh, we don't actually remember much about the stories itself and i think it kind of like that works against the the historical context of this run, that, that it's too small, for, for lack of a better phrase. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, I go back to that quote we started the show off with about like the difference between Spider-Man and Fantastic Four, where it's not about plot, it's about character. And I think he kind of takes this, I mean, I, I would dare say like very few creators on Spider-Man have ever go, gone so hard into character. And, you know, so that makes it a really great read through, but there's no grand tapestry. And like you said, there's no big story. And I think his one big story that he was going for was issue 200. And when it kind of underwhelms and doesn't really work entirely, it can be forgotten. And so like the big stuff doesn't really stand out. It feels like it doesn't have the clunky stories of Conway's run. Like it doesn't have like Hammerhead's ghost or anything like that, you know, but it, but it also doesn't have the Gwen Stacy's death. You know, there's no big thing. And if there is a big moment, it's often undercut. Like the death of Aunt May could be a big deal, but you as the reader know that she's not dead the whole time. And so none of these big surprises land and none of them, you know, like hit quite as hard. And in a way it's like, it's exactly what I want out of a Spider-Man comic, but it also allows it to be forgotten in a way. And, and, and that's interesting. I think over the history of the Spider-Man character, right? Like daredevil, we could point to any number of stories like born again or whatever as the best daredevil story, because his stories are character and often plot, but Spider-Man is very much not that way. There's it's, 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 we did a whole essential series but like for a character that's Marvel's flagship character, he really doesn't have those like distinguishing runs and stories in the way that other characters often do. I see what you're saying, although I would argue like, you know, certainly something like, you know, coming home with JMS with Moreland. I mean, that's a story that's that's big and also character driven. Obviously, the the stuff that Jerry Conway wrote with the death of Gwen, the death of Goblin is very big and grand, but character driven. So, I mean, we get them. But again, we're talking we're talking about these are the greatest Spider-Man stories ever because they contain both those elements. And and like you said, I don't think that there are really any stories that kind of hit both those beats equally. I mean, you know, maybe again, the biggest the biggest story is Kingpin's Midnight Massacre. And that's more of a Kingpin story than a Spider-Man story. And so many of his stories kind of subvert the character. Like he's really interested in like Peter as the flawed hero and I literally like that, but it can make it hard to read at times, right? Like he, you don't like Peter all the time. And a lot of the main kind of things you associate with Spider-Man are no longer present in here, right? You got no Mary Jane. Peter stops working for the bugle. He goes to the Daily Globe. You know, like a lot of the stuff is kind of like reshuffled around, which is exciting. Like I like those books. But when you think about classic stuff, all of his stories kind of come with a caveat, right? Like there's 
there's something else going on. Yeah. And I mean, and to that end, like the Betty Brad stuff that we were talking about earlier, I mean, that's that's legit cringy, cringeworthy and painful to read now. I, I you know, that like that whole that whole arc is is really tough to read, I think. If you're a fan of the character, you know, and like I get what Wolfman was going for in in something like that in terms of kind of showing the shades of gray for Peter. But that's hard. Like if you're a fan of this character, that's a hard. Those are hard stories to read because like you don't want to think about your hero like being that kind of scummy. There's also a lot of stories that kind of are never finished in this run because of his kind of abrupt departure. So you've got like. Uh, the Jonah stuff at the Daily Bugle and like Jonas Harrow who kidnaps him. We we don't really find out what happens. And so he left it to the next writer to kind of wrap up a bunch of stuff. And I think after issue 200, I think you could really tell his heart really wasn't in it quite as much. You get like this kind of Punisher story. And then there's a really random Dazzler Lightmaster story, which to me reads more like an issue of Spectacular Spider-Man. I mean, this might be the only issue of Amazing Spider-Man that actually acknowledges the light master is a character. So, you know, I think his run kind of ends on like for a six, like on a six issue sputter, you know, despite it being, you know, kind of really high it, it, to me, he, he had saved it all for 200 and then kind of rode out his exit of Marvel after that. On paper, 200 is a big high note of a story to end on. It just, you know, I think history has not been as kind to it as maybe Marv Wolfman would have liked it to be. Marv Wolfman, a great run of Spider-Man stories, but ultimately one that people kind of overlook. So I hope we did justice to Marv today. I think we did. I mean, you know, I, again, like you said, th- these are very well written, tightly plotted stories. It's just, you know, it's hard to to heat platitudes on it when you don't have major earth shaking moments in it like we've had in the first three seasons of, of comics and, and media that we've talked about when it comes to Spider-Man. Well, it's one I I look back on fondly and I always enjoy rereading. So, yeah, I hope you guys enjoyed it. And if you find this show entertaining and valuable, I I would say please consider supporting us. Recommend Amazing Spider-Man to a friend. And if you're able, become a member on our Patreon. Yeah, we can only bring you this content with the support of our Patreon members. And we owe the show's success to every single one of them. And we are constantly making exclusive content for our members. This week, it's a special podcast review of Amazing Spider-Man number 42. Next week, they get an exclusive mailbag podcast episode answering their questions. And Dan and I are also hosting interactive members-only live streams now. So, Dan, we are doing a lot for our Patreon members. Absolutely. And since new comic issues aren't coming out right now... Why not take that $3.99 and put it towards a month's subscription to support the show and start receiving our Patreon content? And when comic stores open back up again, you'll hear our Patreon-exclusive review podcast on every new issue of Amazing Spider-Man the same week that it comes out. And if you contribute $10 a month, you gain access to exclusive artwork from famous Spider-Man artists commissioned exclusive for our patrons. This season, we'll be mailing out a print of Nothing Can Stop the Juggernaut, drawn by official Marvel artist Max Fiamora in color and inks. Plus, every episode we release a new episode-specific desktop background created for us by artist Nick Cagnetti for our patrons to enjoy. We know this is a hard time for everybody, so we appreciate anyone who supports the show just by listening and sharing. But if you have the means, please join our Patreon to support the continued existence of our show. Just follow the link in the description. And thank you to all the members who already make this show possible. But alas, it is that time, Dan. Time for all good things to come to an end. So we want to say 
thank you to you, the listeners and viewers, for tuning in to this episode of The Amazing Spider Talk. Yeah, this episode was edited by Rick Coast with production support from Andy Myers. Our artwork comes handcrafted by artists Ron Friends, Sal Busema, Ray Sumzer, and Nick Cagnetti. And our theme songs were produced by Rylan Bojack and Spider Madge. So this was a lot of fun, Dan. And I, I think I and everyone else want to know what's coming next down the pipeline. Yeah, Mark, in two weeks, we're going to be discussing the next major run on Amazing Spider-Man. And I use the term major loosely because we're going to be talking about the Denny O'Neill run and what you and I are coining Spidey's Lost Years. Woo! Woo, it's going to be a lot of fun. I mean, you know, Denny O'Neill, he's a big deal, another big deal from the Distinguished Competition. I wonder how he did on Spider-Man. I guess we'll we'll talk about it in two weeks, Dan. (laughs) I promise you that episode's not going to be as long as this one, and for good reason. But uh, yeah, so Denny O'Neill, it's going to be a lot of fun. Come join us. If you're listening on YouTube, you can see the beautiful artwork from Nick Cagnetti here for our next episode. So, Mark, I know we had our doubts, but we did it. We did our first live episode streaming on YouTube. I mean, yeah, we we certainly did something. I don't know. I don't know how it went, but we did it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So if you missed out, be sure to check it out next time. And don't forget, as soon as the show ends, the conversation continues with our audience on YouTube. But don't worry, everybody. This is also still a podcast that will always remain consistent, just like how we end the show. That's with our motto. Mark, take it away. What is our motto? Oh God, people get to see me do this now. With great podcasts, there must also come the all-new Amazing Spider Talk.